I'm Anton Hellman. And I'm Teresa Chan. I'm Justin Morgenstern. And I'm Rory Spiegel. And this is the Journal Jam Podcast. So Justin, Teresa, and I are excited to bring you not only a new format for the Journal Jam Podcast, but a new co-host and co-conspirator, the EM nerd himself, the brilliant Rory Spiegel from Baltimore. So pleased to have you on the show, Rory. Before we get into things, can you just tell us a little bit more about the great med-ed things uh, you've been doing the last couple of years? Uh, well, first, thanks for having me. I'm honored to be here. I don't know about great med-ed things, but currently I'm an attending physician down on in Baltimore at University of Maryland, and I've put together a small blog known as EM Nerd, where I kind of rant angrily about different topics in emergency medicine. And um, I do the Annals of Emergency Medicine podcast with my co-host, Ryan Radecki, um, where we kind of cover the recent articles that have been published in Annals each month. Right on. Awesome. So it's great to have you joining the team on the Journal Jam podcast here. Now, we've changed things around a little bit, and we've got sort of a new format for the Journal Jam podcast. So our primary goal is to take a single clinical question, and after reviewing all the available evidence, provide you with a simple evidence-based answer, or at least try to. Yeah, we value science in all its complexity. Knowing what to do in medicine is valuable, but the real important thing is understanding why we do it. Yeah, understanding why prevents us falling into dogmatism. Now, understanding why helps us talk to our patients and our colleagues. Understanding why makes it easier to change practice when new evidence becomes available. So in addition to that really simple bottom line, we're going to spend some time exploring and explaining the literature so that we'll all understand the evidence behind our day-to-day practice. Hmm, deep dive EBM podcasts relevant to our everyday practice. I love it. And hopefully, as an added bonus to these literature deep dives, we'll also be able to explain and decipher some of the important principles behind evidence-based medicine. Yeah, and you might just hear once in a while in the podcast an EBM bomb by another Anton from the EM Cases team. I know it's a bit confusing, but we're very excited to have another Anton with us, Anton Nikolain, who is going to have feature moments where he's going to explain a key EBM concept in the middle of the larger podcast to make sure everyone's on the same page. Right on. So let's just dive into the first case. A 54-year-old man with a history of hypertension and smoking comes into your ED with two hours of acute onset, sharp, non-pleuritic, 8 out of 10, constant epigastric pain that radiates to both shoulders. He vomited once, but has no other associated symptoms. His vital signs are normal, except for a slightly elevated BP. He has no pulse deficit or aortic murmur. Abdomen is benign. His ECG shows nonspecific T-wave changes, and his chest X-ray is normal. A repeat ECG is unchanged, and his first troponin, lipase, and liver enzymes come back negative. So... Since this journal jam is on the value of D-dimer in the workup of aortic dissection, let's ignore for now that this could very well be ACS and a bunch of other things and talk about dissection in particular. Now, I'm thinking with this guy that he could have an aortic dissection. You know, he's got some risk factors, hypertension. He's got an abrupt onset of sharp pain, which is the most common descriptor for dissection pain. The pain's non-pleuritic. And his pain goes above and below the diaphragm, which is sometimes worrisome for an aortic dissection. 
However, he doesn't have any of the really high-yield features of dissection that I look for, like pulse deficit, radiation into the back, a wide mediastinum on chest X-ray, new aortic regurge murmur, or a neurodeficit. So in my mind, he's low risk for dissection, but certainly not no risk. I mean, I think when I look at this case, sometimes I also think about the two types of dissection, so type A versus type B. Um, and this person, while they're not high, high risk, again, for the type A dissection, which would include the aortic arch and other like central chest pathology, um, definitely the above and below the diacrine frame makes me think of that type B dissection. And I'd say that he might actually be even moderate risk in my mind, considering some of the negative workup and the others. My pretest probability is shifting as we get negative testing coming back about the lipase and the other things. So I've always struggled with the decision of when to image the aorta when I have that niggling feeling that it could be dissection, right? While I don't want to miss the rare aortic dissection, I also don't want a CT or TEE, transesophageal echo, on everyone with chest pain, right? And so this brings us to the question, um, is there a way, maybe a blood test or something that could help us screen and rule out those patients with a low probability of dissection so that I don't have to do a CT on everyone. So this is actually our question for this Journal Jam episode. Is there a role for D-dimer testing in the workup of aortic dissection in the ED? Now, I asked myself this question when I came across a review by ASHA in the Annals of Emergency Medicine last year. And it said that D-dimer has a 98% sensitivity for aortic dissection and that it might be useful to rule out dissection in low-risk patients. I mean, that sounds amazing, a simple blood test to rule out a deadly disease. But I don't know, is this too good to be true? Well, Anton, the most important thing when you're reading a systematic review is that it's only as good as the original literature that it's summarizing. And since we're here to do a deep dive, let's skip right past that and get into the base literature. Now, there are a lot of early trials on this topic that had really small numbers and honestly, really poor methodology. So we can probably skip over the bulk of them just for the sake of time. But I'd like to look at one of the smaller trials just to explain how important the selection of patients is when you're trying to study something like D-dimer in aortic dissection. One of these early studies was by Egbrecht in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology in 2004. Now, this study looked at 16 patients with the diagnosis of aortic dissection, along with 16 with MI, 16 with PE, 16 with non-cardiac chest pain, and 32 with asymptomatic chronic aortic dissection. They make no mention of how this sample was drawn, but they tell us that D-dimer has a sensitivity of 100% and a specificity of 67%. A sensitivity of 100%, that sounds, again, too good to be true. Rory... Can you tell us a little bit more about sensitivity to uh, to get us to really understand this a bit better? Yeah, I think before we kind of look at those numbers and, and apply any truth to them, we kind of have to view them in a certain context. So the sensitivity is the true positive rate. It essentially looks at all patients with a disease and tells us how many of these have a positive test. The key is that you have to know the total population with the disease. So if there's no systematic way of identifying every patient who has the disease, the study won't be able to give you an accurate picture of a test sensitivity. On the other hand, the specificity is the true negative rate. So this looks at patients without the disease and tells us how many of them will have a negative test. 
To measure a specificity, you need to know the population who doesn't have the disease. So if a study doesn't identify all comers, imagine all the patients you would work up for a disease in the emergency department, then it is unable to give us an accurate picture of the test specificity. This whole idea of identifying the right patients is what EBM nerds are referring to when they talk about selection bias. And it's actually relatively simple. All we're saying is that if you don't capture all the patients with disease, you can't get an accurate look at sensitivity. And if you don't capture the patients without the disease, you can't get an accurate look at specificity. So let's jump back to that paper by Egbrecht. It's pretty obvious if they're just comparing 16 patients with aortic dissection to 16 with PE to 16 with MI to 16 with non-cardiac chest pain, this is not a representative sample. They don't tell us how they found these patients, but clearly they didn't identify all the patients with aortic dissection, nor did they define a clear population without a disease. So if we don't know these total populations, we can't have accurate estimates of sensitivity and specificity. So really, we want a huge multi-centered study of all comers presenting with anything that sounds remotely like a dissection, right? Yeah, this is so key. So in the ideal theoretical world, we would want to examine every patient in the entire world throughout all of time who presented with signs and symptoms concerning foreign aortic dissection. And then we would want them all to undergo the gold standard evaluation of a CT aortogram and identify all the patients with aortic dissection. Only then would we truly know the diagnostic accuracy of a D-dimer. Now, since this is logistically and ethically impossible, we have to use some form of sampling. So any sample we examine, we're assuming is representative of the larger population. And as such, we can extrapolate the findings to the population we see in the emergency department. This sample can deviate from the greater population in essentially two ways. The first is by statistical chance, and this is the one we are most familiar with. And we have many statistical methods, most commonly is used as frequentist statistics, to compensate for this. The confidence intervals you typically see surrounding a point estimate tells you just how this sample may deviate from reality. Let me just get this straight. So a wide confidence interval means the sample doesn't represent the whole population so well, and a narrow confidence interval does, right? Right. So that's statistical chance. What about bias? In other words, the, the non-random error. Right. So, so the second form of error is non-random error or bias. And if there's some methodological flaw in the study design that causes the study's results to be different from the true results in the general population, that's what we're referring to as bias. So instead of making those error bars that you're looking at on a graph wider or narrower, bias is what would shift that point estimate to the right or to the left away from the truth. I think another way to think about bias is that bias is when you have a systematic over or underestimate of the population. For instance, in the Egbrecht study, you have now assumed that aortic dissection is in equal proportion to PE and ACS. And these are things that we know are not the truth, right? So now you've overrepresented uh, systematically the number of people with those dissection phenomena. So all the small early studies, including the Egbrecht cohort, have significant risk of bias. But the honest truth is, probably all the studies that we talk about today will have some bias. <laughs> What about all the other papers on D-dimer for dissection? So let's dive into this. So the first study we're going to look at is the Suzuki and All trial, which was published in circulation in 2009. And this is probably one of the higher quality papers looking at this question. 
Now, when you kind of dive into it, frankly, the message section is a bit small, and it's not exactly clear how they selected the patients to be included in the study. But it appears these were prospective patients who were undergoing a workup for aortic dissection with high enough concern that they were going to receive a CT aortogram. And all of these patients had a D-dimer drawn at that point. And this is where things get a little unclear. What I think they did was compare patients with aortic dissection to those without aortic dissection. The author present the results as patients with aortic dissections and patients with disease-specific controls, which makes the paper read a little bit like a case control study. Despite this, the bet, from what I can tell, this was a prospective study and not a case control design. So... Of the 220 patients that were enrolled in this study, 87 or 39.5% were diagnosed with an aortic dissection. Now, let's just pause for a second and let that sink in. 39% of these patients were diagnosed with aortic dissection. Is this like the patients we see in the emergency department? No way, Jose. (laughs) (laughs) Not a chance. Yeah. So in the entire cohort, the also report a sensitivity of 96% and a specificity of 46.6%. They go on to subdivide the group by end diagnosis and dive into how this might change your D-dimer's accuracy. And while this is academically interesting, it's not very helpful for, uh, for us in the emergency department when we're typically dealing with the undifferentiated patient. Yeah, right. I, I'm with you here entirely, Rory. I, I really tried hard to find more about the methods section here, including looking at all their other studies, and I, I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't successful. But I think there's some simple takeaways here. It's not perfect methods. They do report a really good sensitivity, but it's not 100%, and it's not a great specificity. I, I understand. We don't want to miss aortic dissection. But the big thing is we don't want to image every patient with a chest. And the whole reason we're having this D-dimer dis- discussion is to limit imaging. But the rule-in rate here was 40%. Can you imagine if 40% of your CTs came back positive? Is this really a group that we're going to limit imaging in? I think what's interesting about the study is that they studied the patient population after someone had decided that they needed to test. So someone else has been the discriminating feature and decided that they need to pull the trigger on testing for AOR dissection, which means that you've got another clinician's gestalt that's layering in on that. That's not quantified. That's this unreally said or undescribed in the study. And I think it's really important to think about what that means in terms of whether or not we can use this study as that first-line clinician who is thinking, should I test or not, right? And to be fair, that's what we want people doing with PE. We want you to order the D-dimer only when you've decided to order the CT scan in that low-risk patient to actually stop the CT scan. But if my PE rate was 40%. I would still be imaging despite the D-dimer rate as well. So it's just that it's a very high risk. And part of that may be, if you really dig into these methods here, these were all tertiary care hospitals. There's no community hospitals in their mix. Uh, so this might just be a very select population that they're looking at. Yeah, I think we're going to see as we go through these papers that all of them have this kind of selection bias where to get into the study, someone had to say, hey, I really think you have an aortic dissection. And I I think in that population, we're going to see that maybe you should probably just be getting the CT. The question we want to know is in the patient where like, "Uh, I'm not sure if you have an aortic dissection or not. What should I do? little mental break here. I just wanted to let you know about the first ever podcasting course for medical education this April in Lexington, Kentucky, put on by the Teaching Institute. There's still a few spots left. Now, if you're interested in starting a podcast or you already have a podcast that you want to make better, 
or you're a medical educator who's just looking to spread their wings into the realm of podcasting, this will be the course to take you to the next level. Now, the beauty of this course is that you'll get individualized instruction in small group workshops with only about five participants in each workshop. Each one will be led by people like Scott Weingart, Rob Rogers, Salim Rizé, Jess Mason from uh, MRAP, Anon Swami Nathan, a professional podcasting guru named Chris Curran, uh, and me as well. You'll get lots of practice doing pre-production, recording, editing, and sound design, and you'll get to hang out with like-minded podcasters. It's going to be lots of fun, so I hope you can make it. Check it out at flippingmeded, all one word, dot com under courses. All right, that's probably a good time to jump onto the next paper because some of the same conversation is going to carry forward here. So the next paper we want to talk about is FAN. It's in 2010, and it's in the Journal of Clinical Chemistry and Laboratory Medicine. I read that one all the time. One of my favorite journals. (laughs) So this study is a prospective cohort, but again, it's on a very select group of patients. So they start with a cohort of almost 6,800 patients, but they exclude 5,200 of them because they found an alternative diagnosis. So that's important to note because we would normally order D-dimer early in the workup. So that's 5,200 patients who could have been exposed to the false positives of D-dimers in real life, but they're not included in these numbers. Another 1,200 patients were excluded because the final diagnosis just wasn't established. So this is a group of patients that we don't know what happened to them, but we just excluded them anyway. So that's a problem because some of them might have had a missed aortic dissection. And again, false positive numbers from D-dimers could have led to unnecessary imaging in that group. But ultimately, we're left with a cohort of just 260 patients in whom the diagnosis of aortic dissection was suspected. And once again, the rule-in rate here, 48%. Now, they actually explored a number of different D-dimer cutoffs to use, but if you just look at our traditional, the 500 nanograms per milliliter, they report a sensitivity of 93.5% and a specificity of 83%. Let's pause for a second. D-dimer is 83% specific for aortic dissection. What do you think, Rory? Yeah, I mean, these, these numbers are obviously overinflated. I mean, if you exclude all the patients who don't have an aortic dissection, then obviously your specificity is going to be pretty good. They excluded what you said, 5,200 patients who had another diagnosis and then another 1,200 patients who they couldn't figure out what the diagnosis are. God knows what the specificity would be if you put all those patients into the mix. Um, the other thing here is is like any study where you figure out a way to increase the specificity, you're going to drop your sensitivity, right? And the sensitivity here was far from stellar at 93.5%. And they tried to make this look better with some uh, statistical shenanigans and sliding around their D-dimer cutoffs. And even at an extremely low D-dimer cutoff of 170 nanograms, the sensitivity was only 99%. And we all know what would happen to the specificity if you use that cutoff level. You know, I'm not even thinking of ordering D-dimers in a patient who I think has a really high pretest probability for dissection. I'm getting their blood pressure and heart rate under control. I'm calling the surgeon and they're going straight to CTA. Again, it's really the low pretest probability patients that I'm interested in whether or not a D-dimer will help me. Now, I understand that one study did risk stratify patients first according to the acute dissection risk score, the ADD score. And this score is basically a bunch of risk factors and high-risk elements of the history and physical. And we'll have the score in the show notes, uh, but I'll list them quickly here for you. So the elements of the ADD score are Marfan syndrome, family history of aortic disease, known aortic valve disease, 
recent aortic manipulation, known thoracic aortic aneurysm, abrupt onset of pain, severe pain intensity, ripping or tearing pain, pulse deficit or systolic blood pressure differential, focal neurologic deficit in conjunction with the pain, murmur of aortic insufficiency, as well new in conjunction with the pain, and the last one is hypotension or shock state. So those are the elements of the ADD score. So let's say a patient has none or only one of these high-risk factors listed in the ADD score. Can that help us narrow down those patients who a D-dimer could be useful for to rule out a dissection? Right. Yeah. So, so far we've been only talking about patients with very high risk, right? Patients with a 40 or 50% chance of a dissection. If D-dimer is going to have any chance of helping us here, it's only going to be in a select group of low risk patients, just like we're all comfortable with in the workup of PE. So that's where this ADD score is supposed to come in. But unfortunately, I think it fails. Maybe the most favorable thing I could say at this point is that it's just not ready. There isn't any real prospective validation of this rule. This rule is derived retrospectively from the IRAD registry. uh, And the IRAD registry only identifies high-risk patients. Again, it's all at tertiary hospitals, people referred in with a high risk of aortic dissection. And if you look at even the lowest risk ADD score still has a 5% miss rate for aortic dissection. But even with a definitive prospective study of the ADD score, I think just a quick look at this score and you can tell it's not going to work well in general practice. Think of a specificity of a score where your moderate risk already for any chest, back, or abdomen pain that is either severe or abrupt in onset. Even if that score had perfect sensitivity, almost every emergency department patient automatically gets a non-low-risk score. Yeah, do you, any of you guys use the ADD score in practice? Uh, honestly, until I had started this journal jam, I hadn't really heard about it much. Um, what Justin said, I mean, this is impossible to use. Everyone has a score of one, and you know, the people that I'm actually concerned about probably have a score higher than that. I, I you know, I, I don't know how I would use this to risk stratify patients that I'd be concerned about. If a patient with cholelithiasis walks into the emergency room with their sudden onset right upper quadrant pain all of a sudden has a score of one and that makes me have to think about dissection. I'm not going to be using the score. Even worse, they'd have sudden and severe so they actually get a score of two. They're in the highest risk category. <laughs> yeah. I, this score either puts you in the entirely clinically obvious or the unusable because it's, it's going to be positive on every other patient. Yeah, I agree. Let's talk a little bit about the paper that incorporates this ADD score, which we all agree isn't that useful. But the question is, would it be useful in conjunction with a D-dimer? Rory, can you tell us a little bit about that paper? So this paper is Nazarian and all, and it was published in the International Journal of Cardiology in 2014. And finally, this is a paper that's based in the emergency department, two of them actually, and it retrospectively looks at a prospective collected database. They enrolled patients suspected of aortic dissection, which meant any chest pain, back pain, abdominal pain, syncope, or perfusion deficits in patients without an alternative diagnosis, who the physician was suspicious for an aortic dissection was going to order a CT aortogram. And, you know, while this is a decent definition, uh, it obviously misses the patients that the physician wasn't going to order a CT scan. So there is some selection bias here. And the rule and rate when these emergency physicians decided to go forward with the CT was amazingly high at 22.5%. Looking at the raw numbers of the study, it's similar to the others we've seen. High but imperfect sensitivities at 98.3% and lousy specificities at 35.9%. 
Right. Getting back to the question of this ADD score, this study did try to combine D-dimer with the risk score here. Now, they don't that this uh, risk scores hasn't been prospectively validated. Uh, and they say that's what they're going to do here. But actually, they looked for all this information through a chart review. So they're looking retrospectively. And I do wonder about that in this study, because if you're going to go back and try to find on a chart, if there's any history of connective tissue disease or a family history of aortic disease, I'm not sure you're going to find all that information off the chart. And they don't mention any kind of inter-rater reliability. So I think these details might be difficult to find retrospectively. But accepting that significant shortcoming, the rate of aortic dissection was 6% among those with a score of 0 on the ADD score, 26% with a score of 1, and 40% with a score above 1. Now, those numbers are different. So the score does seem to risk stratify, but I'm not sure that they're clinically helpful. Because I would order a CT for every single one of those groups there. And remember, you're already in a moderate risk category if you have any of severe abdomen, chest, or back pain. So when they combined a negative D-dimer with an ADD risk score of zero, that did give them a sensitivity of 100%. But it would have only allowed them to eliminate imaging in 9% of the population. So I think this strategy is clearly not ready for prime time. And if If at best it can eliminate 9% of the CTs, given the horrible specificity of both the D-dimer and the ADD risk score, I think we can anticipate that in real-world practice, there's a really good chance this is actually going to increase imaging. Yeah, this is all a little bit crazy. I would agree that any number of these uh, risk factors that the score includes are concerning in the right patient in the right context. But the authors would suggest a score of zero is safe to utilize a D-dimer in to rule out aortic dissection. And if the patient has no signs or symptoms concerning for an aortic dissection with no risk factors for aortic dissection, then why on earth would I go working them up for aortic dissection? And so I think what's happening here is this kind of selection bias that we're just not seeing by the way they're presenting this paper. You have to remember that all these patients got into this study because someone was concerned for aortic dissection, and then they went back and looked at all these risk factors to find what predicted it best. But there is some gestalt that the physician was worried about these patients in the first place. But another thing to think of is the D-dimer is also a test that we use for other conditions as well, right? So whereas a vascular surgeon or cardiologist who might be looking at this as a single pathology test what do we do with that D-dimer then when it comes back greater than 4,000 and they have a sudden onset of shortness of breath and chest pain that you kind of discarded the shortness of breath, you're using this to real or dissection, now you're forget to do a CT for the PE that you're wondering about too? Like, it gets confusing when you use one test for two different diagnoses too, right? So I think that really points to what's most important about all this, and I think we'll circle back to it, is that there is no way that D-dimer with the numbers we're talking about is going to replace clinical judgment. You're going to have to make some decisions here. Emergency medicine is not easy, but these are patients that we're going to have to listen to their history, do a good physical, and we're going to have to make make some choices. I doubt that D-dimer is going to make our choices for us. And now for the EBM bomb with Anton Nicoline. Hi. I'm Anton Nicolene, and welcome to our new segment, EBM Bomb. I'll be presenting some evidence-based medicine principles in just under a minute to keep everyone on their toes. Today, external validity. To put it simply, external validity asks whether the study's results can be generalized to your patient population. To determine this, 
we really need to critically appraise the articles and do some active reading, particularly in the methods section. First off, you want to take a really good look at where the study was done. It's important to note if the study was in the eMERGE, ICU, or outpatient clinic. Next, how were the patients selected? How did the study determine which patients would be included or excluded, and does this match how you see your patients in the ER? Third, what were the patient characteristics? Were they old, young, male, female? And of course, what are their comorbidities? Are these the people you are usually worried about in your ED? Lastly, it's really important to take a look at the results and conclusion. You want to know if the results are reproducible and how they compare to other similar studies. This is generally where a meta-analysis can really help determine a result's impact. In summary, external validity is the assessment of a study's results to other situations and patients. Ultimately, it really helps us to make a decision on a study's real-world use. That's been your one-minute EBM bomb. So, Justin, all the papers we've talked about so far had D-dimers drawn only on some of the patients suspected of aortic dissection. Are there any studies that drew D-dimers on all patients that were suspected for dissection? Yeah, there were, there were two more papers that I think were worth talking about. Uh, they're both by, and I'm sorry if I get their name wrong, Hazui, published in 2005 and 2006. Now, the quality is pretty low. They're both uh, retrospective studies. But the reason I wanted to talk about them is these retrospective studies identified every patient diagnosed with an aortic dissection at their hospital. So we have the full population of people who were at least diagnosed with aortic dissection. We don't have people who might have been missed and went home and died, but we have all the patients with aortic dissection. And for whatever reason, at their hospital, they routinely get a D-dimer on every single patient in the hospital. So you get this population where you know every patient with an aortic dissection and every single one of them had a D-dimer drawn. So this is finally that population that we were talking about earlier when we were talking about calculating sensitivity. We have all the patients with disease, or at least all the ones diagnosed with disease, uh, and we have a D-dimer on all of them. And so even though it's retrospective and there's some problems with the chart review, I actually think this is one of the better estimates of D-dimer sensitivity that we have. And if you look at their two cohorts, they report sensitivities of only 93 and 92%. Traditional logic and teaching say that sensitivity and specificity are independent of the incidence of the disease, but that's not always true. In some cases, the performance of a diagnostic test is influenced by the patients it's used on. This is what's known as spectrum bias. In this case, it may be that the clinically subtle aortic dissections are also the diagnostically subtles, that the patients with a negative D-dimer observed in these two cohorts are not included in the remainder of the studies because they have more vague presentations. This may be why the sensitivity in both these studies is lower than the remainder of the studies we've covered. Of course, it's equally likely that this just might be due to methodological flaws in the studies themselves. The fact is, we just don't know. But once again, this illustrates how selection bias can confound our results. That darn selection bias. Okay, now it's time that we put all of this in context together. When we look at these small studies and their relatively limited perspective, the D-dimer assay performed reasonably well. The question becomes, how do we apply these study populations to our generalized ED population? Yeah, my big issue here is the specificity. I mean, these studies are highly, highly misleading. They're highly selected cohorts. Even in these highly selective cohorts, the, set, the specificity was pretty terrible. Can you imagine how this would perform in our general emergency department population where the incidence of aortic dissection is tiny? The false positive rate would be extraordinarily high. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree, uh, Rory. D-dimer was supposed to decrease imaging for PE, but it seems that it might have had the opposite effect in real-world practice. The low specificity here really makes me worried about false positives and ultimately increases in imaging in aortic dissection when really the only value of D-dimer is to decrease imaging. But I would also raise some concerns about the sensitivity of this test. Aortic dissection is a disease not to be missed. Now, we can't catch them all. But if I have a patient who I'm considering imaging, and those are the patients who I'd be considering sending a D-dimer on, I need a test with close to 100% sensitivity. And what did we find here? The Suzuki paper reported 96.6%, FAN was 93.5%, Nazarian 98.3%, and then the Hazui papers were 92 and 93 And the numbers were small, so all those papers had wide confidence intervals. And because of the methodology, I actually worried that these numbers might be overestimates as well. So is a low to mid-90 sensitivity good enough for this disease? And now let's imagine how this would be used in clinical practice. Um, imagine the patient that you're truly concerned about your dissection in, the one who comes in with a tearing, ripping back pain, who's hypertensive and kind of writhing on the stretcher. In that kind of patient, would you really stop after a negative D-dimer? No, of course not. We'd all agree that that patient has to go on to a CT aortogram. Now, this will inevitably be used in the moderate to low-risk patient, just like it's commonly used in the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism. In the patient where I say, I don't really think this is a dissection, but let's just be safe and get a D-dimer. Yeah, so what you're saying is that D-dimer is just going to be ordered more and more, and you're going to see indication creep on more and more patients, leading to more false positives. Yeah, exactly the way we've seen it in pulmonary embolism. I think the other thing that we should point out that's completely absent from this literature is our good old friend in evidence-based medicine, the good old RCT. That's a really good point, Anton. There are no RCTs looking at this topic. That's not unusual for diagnostic studies. What we normally do is just do a large prospective cohort and try to determine what the sensitivity and specificity is. But the RCT plays a really important role. It lets us measure the real harms and benefits of a test. It lets us see how harms like false positives play out against the actual benefits of testing. In this context, only an RCT would tell us if D-dimer decreased testing or actually increase testing. So personally, I'd really want to see an RCT before I started using D-dimer for my aortic dissection workups. So coming back to our middle-aged man with a sudden onset of sharp epigastric pain and no high-yield symptoms, no signs on x-ray for dissection. Would you have ordered a D-dimer? Would you do nothing? Would you go straight to CTA? And what if I told you that the AHA and the ACCF guidelines do not recommend the use of D-dimer in ruling out dissection? You know, Teresa, even after all we've said on this Journal Jam podcast so far about the spectrum bias and the poor specificity and the not-so-great sensitivity, I'd still draw a D-dimer on this particular patient but I would treat the D-dimer result like any other data point in my clinical assessment rather than as a screening test to tell me yes, CT or no CT. You see, my thinking is this. He's got no other explanation for his presentation and pain above and below the diaphragm with nothing else to suggest dissection. So in my mind, he's got about a 1% or 2% chance of dissection. Just my gestalt of what I think he's the chance that he has a dissection is. So I'm not jumping straight to a CT because my personal risk tolerance for missing dissection is about 1%. 
Now, does this mean I would for sure get a CTA if the D-dimer came back positive? Well, no. You see, I use D-dimer for dissection like I use any other data point in my low-risk patients. It sometimes helps me in the overall picture, just like any other data point that I'm collecting on my way. So if I get a slightly positive D-dimer in a patient that I think has only a 1% or 2% chance of a dissection, I probably won't go straight to CT. But if the D-dimer's sky high, it might tip me over the threshold to get a CT. And conversely, if I think a patient has, say, a 15% chance of a dissection, let's say, because maybe I find a pulse deficit on exam and the chest x-ray looks like a wide mediastinum and they have pain above and below the diaphragm, you know, I might, in that situation, I might ignore a negative D-dimer that my resident drew before seeing the patient, let's say. You see, my, my point is, you don't always have to act on a positive D-dimer. You can just treat it as one of the many factors to take into consideration. I'll give you another analogy. Like an elevated JVP, which doesn't have an exceedingly high sensitivity or specificity for CHF, I'll look for a JVP, and if I see an elevated JVP in a patient with shortness of breath, I won't necessarily rule in CHF, and if I don't see a J an elevated JVP, I won't necessarily rule out CHF. Just like D-dimer, it's not at all specific or sensitive. I still entertain the possibility of things like pericardial tamponade, et cetera, for their shortness of breath presentation. Again, it's just one of the many data points that may push me past that threshold of whether to go further in my diagnostic workup or not. So I have one problem with the scenario as you presented, Anton, and maybe we should warn our listeners. We've been arguing for weeks, so this could get a little bit heated here. But I think the big thing is I'm not sure that we can confidently define a population that only has a 1% or 2% risk of aortic dissection. Aortic dissection is incredibly rare. What these studies tell us is that we're actually pretty damn good at picking it out. When the docs in these studies decided to image, they were getting rule-in rates between 20 and 50%. So if the patient has symptoms that tips you off to aortic dissection, we have to image. On the other hand, if the patient doesn't have those symptoms, aortic dissection is so rare that the pretest probability almost certainly is going to be less than 1%. So I don't think the 1% to 2% estimate here that you have, is, which would be the ideal number to use a D-dimer in, is really a fair estimate. But you see, Justin, the 1% to 2% of dissection is my personal gestalt. It's not based on the literature at all. The numbers in this literature don't make sense to me, actually. You know, the ADD score of zero still has a 6% chance of ruling in. My point is, we know that physician gestalt is pretty damn good. You know, these studies really only included the patients where the physician wants to go straight to the scanner. You know, those patients are easy. What I want to know about are the clinical scenarios when I honestly don't know. When it might be an aortic dissection, but I don't really think so. You know, it's those patients who come in with chest pain where there's no other obvious diagnosis after workup and dissection is still on my differential as it should be with all chest pain patients. Where my experience in Gestalt over 17 years of practice tell me the patient has a 1% or 2% chance of having a dissection. And, and that's a very fair argument, Anton, and I don't want to bring up how much older than you are either, but I still think you might be wrong. The problem with the debate that we're having is that it is entirely unanswerable right now. There just doesn't seem to be any data that would tell us what the true pretest probability of the patient you're describing is. But my feeling is 
that your pretest estimate is just too high. And I say that for a couple reasons. First, the base rate of disease is incredibly low for aortic dissection. We'll see at least 100 PEs for every dissection we diagnose, closer to 500 MIs for every dissection. So when you're starting at that incredibly low num- number, I don't think that you've necessarily described anything just because of the fact that you haven't found an alternative diagnosis that has a strong enough likelihood ratio to bring that pretest probability all the way up from your base rate of up to 1% or 2%. More importantly, although you've seen a dozen or so aortic dissections in your career, I just don't think anyone will see enough of this disease to really develop an accurate clinical gestalt. Maybe Walter Himmel would. Yeah, I, I don't doubt. Walter knows everything. And I don't want you to get me wrong. I do think that clinical assessment is the most important thing that we do. But I think our gestalt fails us when we're talking about tiny numbers. We know that humans are horrible at probabilities and at small numbers, and that we overestimate very small probabilities. That explains the existence of the lottery. I think that's what's happening here. I don't have a study to prove it, but for a condition that's at least 100 times less common than PE, I just don't think you're going to develop an accurate gestalt. And the reason that I worry about this is that if we combine that overestimate of the chance of aortic dissection with the use of a non-specific D-dimer, we could see a significant harm in that the imaging rates could go way up without identifying any extra aortic dissections. Yeah, I think this is the crux of our disagreement, Justin. I think coming up with a gestalt estimate, even for very rare conditions, is at the core of what emergency physicians do. Whether it's for aortic dissection or neck fash or spinal epidural abscess, we have to consider these diagnoses and decide how worried we are that the patient has one of them. So to come up with a pretest probability, the only resource we have for these rare conditions is our gestalt. So I absolutely agree with our need for gestalt. I, I just don't think that we can get this granular with, our, with the data. Based on reading this literature, I think we have to take what we know about aortic dissection and make a gestalt decision about either high risk or low risk. And obviously, if they're high risk, they need imaging. But if they're low risk, in the case of aortic dissection, low risk is really, really, really low risk. And based on everything I've seen, knowing that we can't catch everybody, I think with that group of patients, we're done. And there's one more point that I wanted to raise about D-dimer in this context. We're talking about the patient as if aortic dissection was the only diagnosis on our differential. But if we're talking about a group of patients that you don't think need to go straight to the scanner, dissection can't be considered alone. Dissection presents a lot like a lot of different diseases, and it's so rare that all the other rare diseases that are on your differential also need to be considered. So I've ordered a lot of CTs of the aorta, and they've come back negative for dissection. But were they really negative? Almost never. I've caught splenic infarcts and splenic artery dissections, a splenic artery aneurysm, pancreatitis, a massive mediastinal mass that had bled. The point is that you're ordering the D-dimer to think about aortic dissection, maybe a few other conditions, but there are a lot of conditions that you really need to be thinking about here. So if you're still worried about the patient, like you are with this patient that you're describing, I think that you need to image, not just for dissection, but for whatever is going on that is causing your expert emergency vision brain to think that the patient is sick. The D-dimer doesn't help you with just one rare diagnosis. It actually helps you with a bunch of diagnoses, which is what makes it even more complicated. But I think I think what Justin's getting at here is the key point. It's, it's the point that what none of these studies address and what is almost impossible to get in data is that clinical gestalt of the physician looking at a patient. No, I agree. Saying, Let's move on to our bottom line. Justin, 
So what's your bottom line with D-dimer for the workup of aortic dissection? So I think it's, it's pretty clear that D-dimer doesn't have any role to play at this time in the workup of aortic dissection. All right. And Rory, what's your take? I, I think that the thing here with this data and almost all literature that's almost impossible to sum up is this physician gestalt is kind of looking at the patient and saying something's just not right. And I think anytime you have that, you're going to have to go farther with imaging. You made this patient hard intentionally. I mean, this is the patient you're just not sure. Um, and you did that on purpose. And of course, we all want a simple answer here. We don't want to scan every single one of these patients that comes in with this story. And I think a lot of that goes to physician gestalt. I think the important thing is here, we so want a simple and easy answer, and we hope it would be the D-dimer. And it's just not. It just doesn't provide the data, or at least we don't know yet if it is. The data here just doesn't tell us whether the D-dimer can safely and reliably do this. Um, so the fact that we have no answer doesn't mean we should replace that with a bad answer. So like Justin, I would say no D-dimer, either imaging or not. And I think I agree with both of these gents in saying that the D-dimer isn't the test I'd use for aortic dissection workup or rule out. I think the D-dimer needs to maintain its place in your chest pain workup, however, because a lot of the characteristics that people might describe as your aortic dissection symptoms might also cross over to things like PE, in which case you do have information that you can use from the D-dimer to help you rule out that diagnosis. So I think that it might be something that you do along the way because when a patient presents, they present with chest pain. And so you use the dimer to rule out the PE. But if your innocent suspicion is like, this is an aortic dissection, well, you probably still need to go and image that. And that I'm sensing another Journal Jam podcast on the utility of D-dimer for PE. Yeah. <laughs> well, I admit defeat. I think I've been convinced by Justin, Teresa, and Rory that D-dimer doesn't really have much of a role at all to play in the workup of aortic dissection. On the next Journal Jam, we'll review the world's literature on thrombolysis for stroke and ask the question, which patients, if any, benefit from lytics? So until next time, let's keep on jamming on the Journal Jam. Journal Jam.